Stay hungry, stay foolish. The new normal is perpetual change. Scott D. Anthony. Innovation may be the hottest discipline around today, in business circles and beyond. And for good reason, innovation transforms companies and markets. It's the key to solving vexing social problems, and it makes or breaks professional careers. For all the enthusiasm the topic inspires, however, the practice of innovation remains stubbornly impenetrable. In the Black Book of Innovation, our guest draws on stories from his research and fieldwork with companies like Procter & Gamble to demystify innovation. He presents a simple definition of innovation, breaks down the essential differences between types of innovation, and illuminates innovation's vital role in organizational success and personal growth. This unique hybrid of professional memoir and business guidebook also provides a powerful 28-day program for mastering innovation's key steps, finding insight, generating ideas, building businesses, strengthening innovation prowess in your workforce and in your organization. We welcome senior partner of InnoSight and author of multiple titles, including The Little Black Book of Innovation, Scott D. Anthony. Welcome to the show. Aiden, thrilled to be with you. I know you've written many books since this book. Why I wanted to share this book first was that it's the genesis of your career. The other reason for me is that the same person that influenced your career also influenced me in innovation, which was Clayton Christensen. So let's share how Clayton influenced your career heavily from the days that you were in college. It's pretty straightforward. So I found myself in October 2000 sitting in a classroom in Harvard Business School, where, of course, Clayton Christensen teaches. In the first version of a class that he had created that now has the title Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise, and I found myself falling in love intellectually with the ideas that Clay was talking about. And many people, of course, will know the foundational idea of disruptive innovation and many of the other things that Clay has researched and written about. And I, I remember very distinctly, I was on a plane to Phoenix late October 2000. I picked up a copy of The Innovator's Dilemma, which interestingly, Clay had not recommended to people in his class to read for whatever reason. And I fell even more deeply in love. And I said, this really is a topic I want to understand more deeply. I, I want to really immerse myself in. I want to understand so I can help other people benefit from some of these powerful ideas. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I, I did an independent research study with Clay the next semester, which was the last semester of my MBA program. I graduated and stuck around Harvard Business School for a couple of years leading up Clay's research team. We co-wrote a book together. And then in 2003, I joined Innosight, the company that he co-founded with my colleague, Mark Johnson. And 16 years later, here we are. You have a rich lineage as well of innovation in the family as well. It'd be great to share that before we start diving into the book. It's interesting. I think almost anyone, if they take the lens that I took when I look back at my family history, will find similar stories in it. But as I understood more what innovation is, as I understood more what disruptive innovation is, I realized there was clear disruptive innovation in my family. And the example that I, I share in the book is of my grandfather, Robert and Anthony Sr. And he disrupted a place that you wouldn't expect to be disrupted, the teaching of accounting. So he was a business school professor. Most of his life, he wrote dense, dry academic textbooks on arcane subjects. And that worked pretty well for him, very well for him. 
publishers paid him well to write those textbooks. He taught at an MBA program. Everything was good. But he realized in the early 1960s that the model confined him to reach a very small segment of people because most people don't want to read dense, dry textbooks that require expert instruction to understand. My grandfather thought many more people could benefit from just the basics of accounting, but to reach a broader audience, he had to do something different. So in the early 1960s, he introduced the first version of a book called Essentials of Accounting, which is not a dense, dry academic textbook that requires a professor. It's a do-it-yourself workbook where you fill in the blanks and teach yourself the very basics of accounting. You go through it, and you don't understand deep mastery or don't have deep mastery over a subject, but you know the basics. You can read the financial press. You can talk with people in finance. You can calculate things like days receivable and so on. And of course, this very simple book dramatically outsold anything else that he wrote. It was re, There were 12 different editions of the book. It sold more than 3 million copies during its lifetime, which, of course, is not Harry Potter numbers, but for an accounting <laughs> book, it's just an astonishing number. And it's the essence of disruptive innovation. You take something complex, you make it simple. You take something expensive, you make it affordable. You allow individuals to do it themselves, and you create this big, booming market. And of course, I didn't have the language to describe this when I was growing up and, and knew my grandfather. But once I understood what disruptive innovation was, I realized, again, it's a, a little bit in my family's DNA. When you had that family DNA of innovation, you also experienced firsthand disruptive innovation and being the victim of it when you worked in the college newspaper. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, the, the, the story that I'll tell is that the first time I ever met a disruptive innovator was 1975. That's the year I was born. And I'll talk about the, the story of my grandfather. And then I'll talk about my first face-to-face -face encounter with disruptive innovation in the mid-1990s when I was the managing editor of my school's daily newspaper. So this is my undergraduate school. This is Dartmouth College in the Northeast part of the United States. And the newspaper was called The Dartmouth. It's the oldest continuously published newspaper in North America since 1769 it's been published. And we were there right in the face of big disruptive change in the industry because the Netscape browser, the first easy way for lay people to access the internet came out when we were running the newspaper. And this was a, a serious thing at the newspaper. We had a staff of about 50 people, you know, of course, all volunteers. We produced this newspaper five days a week. We, we took it very seriously. We worked very hard at it. And we struggled with the same thing that large organizations all around the world struggled with. So when the internet came out, the first feeling that we had as a leadership team wasn't enthusiasm or excitement. It was terror. We were fearful of the change because our business model for the newspaper was based on having people subscribe to the print version of the paper. And today, 20 years later, people still haven't figured out really how to charge for content online. So you can understand the fear. We got over it, of course. We're college students. We didn't have as much to lose as people in big publicly listed companies. But what did we do when we finally went online? Did we reinvent, reimagine, reconfigure, reposition the business? No. We created once a week a word-for-word, pixel-for-pixel replication of the best stories that appeared in the print version of the newspaper, not with the intent of driving in a different direction, but rather using it essentially as a promotional vehicle to get people to subscribe to the print version of the paper. And these are the troubles that large companies run into. They take too long to respond to the change, and when they do respond to the change, 
they frame it through the lens of their existing business model rather than reimagining or reinventing. So I had very good firsthand experience about how very hard this thing that Christensen called the innovator's dilemma really is. It's a huge challenge. And this is what you call your own term. You call the innovator's paradox when you know that there's a change needed, but by the time you actually react to it or be proactive about it, it's way too late. Yeah, you see this again and again. So, you know, when business is good, you feel like you can dabble a little bit and try things, et cetera, but you don't have the urgency to go and respond to disruptive change. When the disruptive change begins to take a real bite out of you, that's when all of a sudden the the mandate is there, the quote unquote burning platform has appeared. But at that point, your opportunity to do something has gotten so narrow that you really can't respond appropriately. So this is the real paradox. When you have the space to respond, you don't feel the urgency, so you don't put sufficient resources behind it. When you have the urgency, you can't do the things that are required to succeed. One of my colleagues, Clark Gilbert, this was the focus of his doctoral studies at the Harvard Business School now more than 20 years ago. It was titled A Dilemma in Response, and it was exactly this. What you ideally need is you need that sense of fear, even if it's not real, to motivate people to allocate resources. But then you have to infuse those resources with opportunity, because if they still feel fearful, they'll get very narrow, very constrained in the things that they do. Again, this is incredibly tough stuff. There's a reason why Christensen called that book, The Innovator's not challenge, not problem, not struggle. There's a reason he called it a dilemma, because the right answer just isn't obvious and isn't clear. Now, of course, we believe it's solvable and all that, but we also have the humility to understand that this is an incredibly tough challenge. And it's a challenge that people just can't get their head around because they're doing a good job. I think this is a really interesting thing, because oftentimes when we talk in innovation, the status quo or the established business or the core business think that you're dogging on them, that you're giving out about them, that you're saying that they failed some way, but actually they're victims of their own good job. Exactly right. And the challenge you have related to that too is the data, the data that you need to make the convincing case that it's time to do something only appears when it's too late to do something about it. A a recent example of this, look at, at Research in Motion, company renamed in the last few years, BlackBerry. There's this just utterly fantastic video you can find on YouTube from April 1st. No April Fool's joke. It really happened on April 1st, April 1st, 2008. Jim Balsillie, the co-CEO of Research in Motion, talking about his view of the changes in the marketplace. And he basically is very smug and very comfortable during the discussion saying, the iPhone has come out. That's not going to bother us. Where our business is still growing. I don't worry about these things. I don't look to my left. I don't look to my right. We're a poorly diversified company. It either goes to the moon or it crashes to the earth, but we're going to the moon pretty well. So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And you play this now and everybody laughs at it because you know the end of the story. But if you actually look at the financial performance of research in motion, that year sales were roughly $3 billion US dollars. They doubled to $6 billion. They went up to $11 billion. They peaked in 2011 at $19 billion. So even while the disruptive change, the move to iOS, the move to Android is taking place, everything looks good until, of course, it doesn't. Now Research in Motion renamed BlackBerry. Its revenues are below $1 billion US dollars. So it did indeed crash to the earth, but the data only came when it was too late to do anything about it. This is why it is, again, a dilemma. 
And the other thing that so many businesses struggle with, and you identify this in the book, is the term innovation itself. It's a tricky one because it means so many things to so many people. And it's one of the reasons I named this show The Innovation Show, because it gave me enough scope to have a wide variety of guests all about change and transformation. I know you defined the term innovation back then. What would be your current definition of innovation? Yeah, it's interesting because it has changed a little bit since the book. In the book, the first version of the Little Black Book of Innovation, and there is a paperback version that came out in 2017, which is why I separate the, the two versions. In the first version, the definition was something different that has impact. Something is intentionally vague to remind us that innovation comes in lots of different forms and flavors. It's not just science and technology. You can have new marketing approaches, new ways to organize meetings, and so on. We use the word different as opposed to breakthrough or great leap forward to remind us that sometimes the innovations that do go on to have the most impact are those that do exactly what my grandfather did with essentials of accounting. Take something complicated, make it simple. Take something expensive, make it affordable. They might not be better in many dimensions than what existed, but they're clearly different. So then the last two words we started with has impact. But then one of my colleagues, Andy Parker, said impact is a little vague. You can have negative impact, and that's not what you're looking for. So we changed the definition a little bit in later versions to something different that creates value. And those last two words, creates value or has impact, whatever you want to use there, the purpose of having them there is to separate innovation from its precursors, things like invention and creativity. Important things, no doubt. But until you take the spark of invention and creativity and turn it into something different that creates value, whether that's revenues, profits, improved performance, whatever, in our eyes, you have not innovated. And that's just a simple way to remind people that innovation is not an academic activity. It is a very active activity. And of course, there are lots of different types of innovation, and we can get into the different categories that exist. But that simple definition of something different that creates value is something that we find very helpful to remind people of many of the essential parts of innovation. And again, another thing you identify very clearly in the book is innovations in the eye of the beholder. So it depends on who's looking at it and how they view value. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's go back to essentials of accounting. If you just keep playing with that for a second. Is essentials of accounting, is it a good pedagogical way to teach accounting? Now, if you compare essentials of accounting that you're doing yourself to sitting in a classroom with a professor who is an expert in teaching, of course, it's not nearly as good as that. But if to sit in a classroom might cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, and essentials of accounting is 20 bucks. So to the person who doesn't have the time or money to be able to sit in that classroom, Essentials of accounting is a fantastic solution. They can do it on their own time. They can understand it when they want to understand it, et cetera. So you always need to look at things through the eyes of the customer or stakeholder, whatever words you want to use there, before you start to assess the value equation. Because often when we look at it through our own eyes, we can make mistakes. And this, again, is one of the challenges that companies run into when they see something disruptive in the marketplace, because often because there is some kind of performance trade-off in it, you know, taking something that's expensive and making it simpler, taking something that is complicated and making it something that's more affordable, because you do have that, that new trade-off that's being introduced, your very best customers don't necessarily want it. And it's easy to then say it's low quality and just use that as a blanket statement. 
you always want to say low quality for whom, low quality in what context when you're trying to assess the quality of any innovation. Otherwise, you can make some big mistakes. And to bring the creation of value a little bit further, you again give a great example of the difference between inventions and ideas. So here you talk about the difference between Da Vinci and Edison. I just read the, I just finished the, the Walter Isaacson biography of Da Vinci, which is a really good book, highly recommended. And it's a very powerful reminder of the power of living at intersections. And that's one thing Da Vinci was truly, truly world-class at, picking up all these different frames and bringing them together, art and science and, really, and all sorts of different things. But most of Da Vinci's genius was discovered two centuries, three centuries, four centuries in some cases. After he lived, people decoded his diaries and said, hey, this guy basically diagnosed the human anatomy, came up with something that looks pretty much like a modern helicopter and so on. But they were ideas that lived in his book. And you contrast that to Edison, 2,000 patents during his life, created things that got into the market, that changed markets, a whole range of different things, the light bulb, the phonograph, and so on. And the essential difference between the two is that Edison was truly obsessed with the creation of value. The world's first electrical generating facility was owned by the Edison Electric Company operating in lower Manhattan. That company merged with one of its rivals and created General Electric, a company, of course, that lives on today. And I remind people then of Edison's most famous quip when it comes to innovation. Genius, he once said, is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That's not to say that da Vinci didn't sweat it out a lot as he came up with a lot of his breakthrough ideas. But if you're not sweating it out to go and create value, again, in our eyes, you are not pushing the innovation frontier. Of course, nothing bad to say about da Vinci. The world's certainly a better place because he existed. But it's an important contrast or comparison to have in mind. At this stage, you find it helpful to look at innovation in two ways. And the first one is strategic intent. And here you reference P&G and the work that you did with them. As you think about the strategic intent of an innovation, it's what really are you trying to do? Are you trying to take something where you're trying to improve what you're doing in an existing category with an existing product? Or are you trying to really go and create an entirely new source of consumption or create a new brand or create a new product? So that this really is what is the, the thing that you're hoping to do with an innovation, which, of course, will matter a lot if you're an organization like P&G that could be working at any given time on hundreds, if not thousands of different initiatives. And you want to be thinking, of course, about having some kind of balance between those initiatives, where at the time, the language we used with P&G is some of those initiatives will be things that we ultimately call commercial initiatives, which essentially are non-product-based ways to improve sales and use of products. So this could be packaging, promotions, and so on. Some of these things could be more sustaining innovations, where you're going to take an existing product and make it better in some way. The, the famous example in the P&G portfolio would be adding additional razors onto razor blades, which P&G's Gillette arm has done throughout its history. Before you go on, I love your prop that you use when you're explaining this, when you're giving keynotes. Yes, I, they, they, there was a period of time where I used to carry a lot of products with me. I, they, as they upped airport security, it became a little bit hard to do some of those things. But, <laughs> but I, I would I would use my razor as a prop to say, you know, a, a good example of a sustaining innovation is Gillette, whose history can be told pretty quickly, a, a single edge to a double edge blade to three blades to five blades. And you ask the question, what comes next? Of course, someone in the lab is working on a 7, 9, 11, 15 blade razor. 
And at some point, and this we use this to illustrate the point of what Christensen has called overshoot. At some point, people don't notice the difference. They'll always take a better product. They'll never turn it down, but they'll grow increasingly unwilling to pay price premiums for it. And that's when disruption is afoot. And interestingly, now I would talk about this years ago before there was things like Dollar Shave Club, which really came in with a fundamentally different approach that essentially said a razor is a razor. What you really want is a pretty simple, convenient way to replenish your razors and ultimately created a business that Unilever, the rival to Procter & Gamble, bought for a billion US dollars. So it's an interesting, interesting space to play around with. And of course, Gillette's been doing lots of things beyond increasing the number of blades on its razor, coming up with new swivel heads, new related products and, and all that. Those are sustaining innovations. You will have innovations that P&G called transformational innovations that really step change and reframe a category. And then you have what P&G called its version of disruptive innovation, which are things that really create new sources of consumption, things like the Swiffer brand that made it simple and easy for people to execute quickly. So again, the key thing here is each of those things has a fundamentally different strategic intent. And that's one way in which you can categorize innovations. And again, different companies use different categories, and we are not dogmatic about what those categories are, although the guidance we provide people is there should be at least two of them. <laughs> and one of them should be something that's doing what you're doing better, and one of them should be doing something different. And again, exactly how you do it, we leave it up to the, the companies to decide, but that's at least a, a designation that we think is important. And one of the worst things that a CEO or an MD or a department head of a business can hear is the business wants us to innovate more and that this gets trickled down the organization. Everybody panics and they think that they have to invent a new product. But again, you identify areas where you can innovate, including processes, models, business models, distribution, and the business itself. Absolutely. And this is something that has been a large focus of our more recent work that builds on some of the things that were discussed in the little black book of innovation, and then get deeper into how do you actually go and help make that happen? How do you go and create what would be called a, a culture of innovation, which we define as one in which the behaviors that drive innovation success come naturally. So you don't have to force people to innovate. You might help them, but the behaviors that allow innovators to succeed are things that ultimately disappear and become habits. And again, this isn't so that everybody is out working on a seven-blade razor or whatever. It's that everybody is thinking about how to do something different that creates value. And that can be done at, at any level of an organization. It, it can be done at very simple levels. It can be done at ways in which you think about changing the way that you run a meeting to make the meeting more efficient, more productive, more inspiring, more fun even. So innovation doesn't have to be something that is big and scary that has to lead to something that will be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or equivalent, it can be a very quiet, very routine, everyday sort of thing that makes life just a little bit better wherever you happen to be working. Another aspect that was really interesting in the book is that clients that you advised in the financial downturn 2008-2009 felt they had a choice and they had the choice to either innovate and bet on growth or batten down the hatches and just get through it and survive. Yeah. And I think history has shown those that have recognized that was a false choice, that if you don't innovate, all you're doing, if you batten down the hatches, is elongating life by a little bit. I think history has now shown those that have bet on growth came out of the, the Great Recession in a much stronger, much more sustainable position. 
And the world has not gotten simpler, of course, since then. I mean, we're not here in 2019. We're not in the middle of a global financial crisis, but you have all sorts of interesting things going on, ranging from trade wars to Brexit to rise of populism to increasing pace of technology. I heard a a quip the other day that was channeled through a good friend of ours, Rita McGrath, a, a great professor and thought leader. Today is the slowest day of your life. And that's true. You know, the pace of the accelerating pace of technological change means every day is just a a little bit faster. So in in today's world, standing still is just not an option. So everybody needs to be consistently thinking about how they're going to up their innovation game, because if you're not moving faster in a world that's moving faster, you're falling behind. And that's just the the reality of 2019. And I don't see any sign that that's going to get easier in the future. I always ask innovators like yourself and different thinkers, what are the skills that we need for that future? But one of the ones you mentioned in the book for an innovation mindset is one I love. And you mentioned Da Vinci earlier on is this idea of associational thinking. Yeah. And this is something that was identified in the research stream that goes under the name, the innovators DNA. That's Hal Gregerson, Jeff Dyer, and Clay Christensen. And, you know, good, good academic research looking at specific behavioral techniques or behavioral traits that people follow that increase the odds to be able to successfully innovate. And associational thinking is essentially this idea of living at intersections and being able to bring two disciplines, two mindsets, two approaches together. And this is one of the most persistent things that you see in the innovation literature, that magic happens at intersections when you get these combinations coming. So one of the the very simple pieces of advice that I give people is just find easy ways to get to intersections. And that doesn't have to be hard. That can be as simple as picking up a magazine in a field that you have not studied before, or when you go to your next trade show, instead of going to one in your industry, go to one that is adjacent to or outside of your industry. And it feels a little uncomfortable at first when you do this, but when you've got a tough innovation problem on your mind, having something that's a little bit separate from the problem often gives you insight that you could not have gotten any other way. So it's a very powerful thing that can expose people to new ideas and new ways of thinking. One of the things I found great over the the years since the little black book came out is my kids are now old enough that I can learn from them. My oldest is 13. I've got an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 2-year-old. And they teach me new things all the time just because they're playing with new technologies and they're forming new behaviors. And it gives me just an awesome window into what tomorrow is going to look like. Sometimes it's inspiring. Sometimes it's a little bit scary, but whatever. I'm learning something from it, and that's good. And one of the things you talk about in the DNA of an innovator is the importance of networking as well. And this is one that's often overlooked because people are so busy working in the business that they don't get time to work on the business. Absolutely. So, you know, the the idea of networking in the case of the innovator's DNA, it's networking for ideas. You know, it's trying to get other stimuli from other places. The advice that I give people to continue to build on this thought, again, borrowing liberally from other people, is advice from the great science fiction writer William Gibson, who once said, the future's already arrived, it's just not very evenly distributed. So if you follow the thread, the idea is to go and experience tomorrow today, which I do by spending time with my children because they're exploring new behaviors, new technologies, and so on. But you also can do that by visiting startups, going to look at what's going on in university laboratories, reading scientific papers, reading science fiction, watching science fiction, going and experiencing things that are still edge behaviors. 
things like eating plant-based meat, which is still fringe, but will be increasingly mainstream or mining for Bitcoin or using cryptocurrency in some way. You just want to get your hand dirty with some of these things just so you expose yourself to new ways of thinking because you never know. You never know where you're going to have that connection between things that spurs a great idea to help you in a way that you didn't anticipate. It's interesting because so many innovators or heads of innovation in particularly older companies get told to sit at their desk more, told to stay around the business more instead of getting out there and networking, looking, as you said, at the intersections for forced serendipity in a way. But one of the great things you do in the book is you give a top 10 list of top 10 innovators of all time. And the caveat here being that it's about the accessibility of their writing as well. You've mentioned Clayton already, Clayton Christensen, but who would be in your top three at the moment? Yeah, you know, I think the other two that I would add to the list beyond Clay would be uh, people who are reasonably current would be Rita McGrath and Roger Martin. So Rita, I mentioned very briefly before, Rita is at Columbia University. The idea of discovery-driven planning that is, with different words, one of the backbones of the lean startup movement traces back to work that she did with her colleague Ian McMillan. So I, I, and Rita is still very active. She has a new book that is coming out in the fall of 2019, Seeing Around Corners. I was lucky enough to be able to read an advanced version of the book, a fantastic book, talking about how do you really see those peripheral changes early so you've got enough time to be able to respond to them. So Rita is somebody who I find just consistently refreshing. She's an academic who speaks practitioner, so her writing is always accessible. I think she's just tremendous. Roger Martin, uh, formerly uh, of the Rotman School, University of Toronto, now generally for, for do, going and doing his own things, the Prosperity Institute and, and other things. But he's written a number of books that are, are really good at living at some of these intersections. Uh, he, he wrote The Opposable Mind, which essentially talks about the importance of being able to bridge left brain and right brain thinking and not view it as either or, but really view it as both and the design of business, playing to win, a range of other things. And the thing that I, I just always appreciate about Roger is he's just so crystal clear in his thinking. And again, he, he lives at these intersections. So you always see something different when you go and read some of the things that Roger has done. So beyond Clayton, those would be the, the two other ones that I, I would say are, are, are must studies for anybody who is in the innovation field. One that worked with your grandfather was Vijay Govinda Jaran. He's a proponent of this idea that you talk about strategic innovators must carefully manage how they interact with the core business because the core DNA can sometimes run counter to what the innovator is trying to accomplish. I think that's a key point because the communication between the innovation arm or the new emergent business and the core business becomes extremely important. Oh, absolutely right. So not to go too deep into this, but that's one of the core things in the most recently published book that, that I had, Dual Transformation, along with a, a couple of my colleagues, Clark Gilbert, who I mentioned before, and Mark Johnson, who I also mentioned before. So the, the basic idea is if you really want to go and confront disruptive change head on, if you're inside a large established organization, it's not one transformation, but it's two. Transformation A, repositioning today's business. Transformation B, creating tomorrow's business. And you have to make sure that you don't treat these as completely separate things, but you have a very carefully managed and very actively controlled what we call capabilities link between these two things. And that very strongly builds on and reflects and respects the work that Govindarajan did 
to talk about how you make sure that you don't create these two hostile organizations. That doesn't help anybody. You need to find ways where you get the best of both worlds. And when you do that, it's really powerful. You, you have the ability to have all the assets at scale that entrepreneurs are trying so hard to build without suffering from a lot of the pathologies of, of the innovator's dilemma. So you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting entrepreneurial energy. You're getting scale assets. And of course, that is much easier said than done. But when you can get that combination coming together, it is a really, really powerful thing. Yeah, and I really look forward to talking to you, hopefully, on that book in a few months. It's your latest book, Dual Transformation. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the mindset needed for innovation. And you give this great illustration of the four faces of innovation. And it'd be great to share a little bit about that, starting with Laughly. Yeah, so the uh, and we called it you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we, we called it Innovation Mount Rushmore because there are four U.S. presidents in Mount Rushmore. So we chiseled four faces into our Innovation Mount Rushmore. And it has undergone a, a few changes through the years, but but anyway, we'll, we'll stick with the, the four that are in the book for now. So Laughly, the, the simple lesson to learn from Laughly, Laughly was the two-time CEO of Procter & Gamble. This really focused on Laughly during his first turn of duty in the 2000 to 2008 time period. And the big lesson from Laughly is to remember to put the customer or consumer in the center of the innovation equation. So he had a big movement inside P&G called the Consumer is Boss Movement to remind P&G that the most important person that P&G is innovating for is not for CEO A.G. Laughley. It's not the board chair. It's not the line manager. It's not any of those people. It's the consumer. The consumer is boss. The decisions they make every day to buy and use P&G's products or not are the decisions that make or break the company. And if you look at in more modern times, of, of course, Jeff Bezos at Amazon.com is quite famous for having the company be just relentlessly organized around the customer. And it shows the power of really putting the customer in the center of the innovation equation. So that's the reason why Laughley's face is chiseled into Innovation Mount Rushmore. Before we move on to the seven deadly sins of innovation, let's share quickly as a group the other three members of the Mount Rushmore of innovation. Yeah. So, you know, once you get past Laughley, consumer is boss. The next face we have chiseled in is Mike Tyson, which probably is not one that most people anticipate. But Tyson had a, a great line that I think is incredibly applicable to innovation. Everybody has a plan, Tyson once said, until they get punched in the face. And the basic idea here is when you're innovating, just like in boxing, you, you think you have a plan, you think the plan is right. I and mean, of course, you do have a plan. You, you think the plan is right. But one of the truisms of innovation is every idea is partially right and partially wrong. And you can only figure out which part is which by going and actually doing things. So the lesson from this is don't overplan, don't overthink, try to figure out ways to run experiments as quickly as you possibly can. And of course, since the book has been published, the lean startup movement has really caught fire. So this is something that I think is generally accepted as an innovation best practice today to make sure that you prototype, build your quote unquote minimum viable product and go and learn experientially. So that's the Tyson base in Mount Rushmore. Then you've got two faces that we have already talked about. You've got Edison and my grandfather. Edison is there as a reminder that genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. The inner Edison inside of you needs to push to go and sweat it out and go and create value. And then my grandfather is there to remind everyone of one of the core accounting principles, the dual aspect concept, 
everything balances out. So every strength that you have as an organization has a corresponding weakness and liability. And as you're working on innovation inside a large organization, you have to recognize that while you have all these assets, they also will carry a downside. So you have to be really thoughtful about what you're going to borrow from your core established business and what you're going to walk away from, lest the innovator's dilemma come and smother you. I'd love to jump on to the seven deadly sins of innovation as well. So these are really principles that CEOs, managers, or innovation managers need to take heed of. Yeah, and you know, so there, there's a lot of things in the seven deadly sins. I don't know if it's most efficient to rattle through all of them or, or pick up some of the key points. I think you can see each of the seven deadly sins, you can see them being acted out inside organizations in ways that really inhibit the ability for innovators to succeed. As an example of this, gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, of course. And one of the big mistakes that you can make in innovation is by giving the innovators inside your organization the curse of too much capital. Why can that be a curse? Why is it bad to have too much money? Well, the more money you have, the more fixated you get on following a specific path, which makes it very hard to do what we just talked about, which is to run the simple and quick experiments and walk away from your idea and pivot to a new direction. So some of the the best ways to fund innovation is to, in language that Christensen used in the Innovator Solution, be patient for growth, but impatient for profits. So you know it's going to take some time before you ultimately figure out what will work. So be very impatient demanding the proof that what you're doing is moving in the right direction and be reasonably parsimonious with how you're spending your capital in the early days. That's an example of one of the the deadly sins that we see people run into. And Aiden, I'm I'm happy to go through the other ones, or if you got a favorite or two, that might help to focus the discussion a bit as well. One of the ones that I really honed in on was the idea of wrath and what behaviors get rewarded and what behaviors get punished within an organization, because this really sets the tone. Again, if you you say, what, what have you learned since the book came out? This is an area that people have now studied a lot, or actually some of it had been studied before, but the findings are just becoming more popularized. And the thing I would highlight here is the work of Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson, who she was the one who, in her doctoral research several decades ago now, identified the importance of this concept of psychological safety, which means that you are in an environment where you feel safe to take risks, where you feel safe to have candid conversations about things. And this is a a real challenge for the, the field of innovation. Because most organizations are used to people delivering against their commitments. That's the essence of most organizations. You say you're going to do something, you go and do it. If you do it, you're rewarded. If you don't do it, you're punished. But if you accept the idea that every idea is partially right and partially wrong, and you can only learn experientially, sometimes in innovation, you'll say, I think this is a great idea. I really do fundamentally believe it. I've done my homework. These are all the reasons why I believe it. And you'll just be dead wrong. And if you approach that in the right way, if you experiment in the right way, if you test in the right way, if you learn in the right way, realizing that your idea was not a good idea is not a failure, it's a success. Edmondson actually calls this an intelligent failure as opposed to a complex failure or other forms of failure. But inside most organizations, what I just described there is grounds for punishment. And if people take well-thought-out risks and inflict the wrath of their superiors and get punished for it, no surprise that people then play it safe and don't take any risks at all. 
And this, again, is one of the big themes that's emerging in some of our latest work. How do you really create a culture where that doesn't happen? And you can think about it very easily in an isolated way as an individual leader, making sure you've got the right mindset for it. But doing this at scale at a large organization is a really hard thing to do. So the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, the simple thing that we tell people is just remember innovation is a fundamentally different game than operations. So operations is a game that looks like chess. It is a game that you look at the results, you know whether or not someone played it well. Innovation is a game that's a lot more like poker or blackjack, where any individual time you do it, luck and skill come together. And in those games, it's not the results you look at, it's the process that people follow that tells you whether or not they played the game well. This is something that Michael Mobison discusses in his great book, The Success Equation. I love that. And it's great. Amy Edmondson's coming on to the show. She's booked in for December as well. So we're going to talk about the fearless organization then. But Scott, one thing you mentioned there, which is psychological safety to the innovator or the corporate entrepreneur or whatever that title is, or it could be just somebody who's trying to make change happen. And oftentimes they get vilified or they get ostracized or they get budget frozen on them. The core company tries to freeze them out or else Many people who have a vested interest in the status quo remaining the status quo do so. What is your advice to those people? Yeah, so th- this is a, it's a great question, Aiden. So I would say a couple things. Number one, I would not proclaim victory until you've actually achieved victory. So I mentioned Clark Gilbert before, doctoral study has been very influential, co-author of Dual Transformation. He's actually driven this in a couple organizations. One of his basic principles, very simple, you have to deliver results. I think one of the mistakes people make is they think if they're an innovator, it's okay for them not to deliver results. They can just talk a big game and they can have lots of fun and they can spend lots of money. And that's not true. Now, the results might be different in early days of innovation. It might be more learning than it is earning. It might be you get more insight than you get cash. But if you start talking a lot about the things you're doing without having demonstrably created value, then no surprise, people are going to be very antagonistic to you inside an organization. So that's the the, the first piece of advice. Second, just be really clear about the things that you know and the things that you're assuming. And don't be shy about sharing the things that you're assuming. One, One of my big things that I really push on organizations is I try to avoid using the phrase, I think, at any time during a discussion about innovation or strategy. Because if you start with, I think, you're in the land of discussion about religion and politics, you can never have productive discussion. Instead, the discussion is about the assumption that I'm making is. And when you realize people have different assumptions, that's okay. You can go and run experiments. You can go gather data, blah, 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 blah. But the more innovators are very clear about their assumptions and then have the humility when an assumption is wrong to say, hey, I was wrong about this. This is what we're going to do instead. I think the more power and the more progress they can make inside their organization. And the third and final piece of advice that that I would give to the innovators inside organizations is to remember, you will only succeed. You will only go and create value if you are able to build good bridges with the existing organization. So creating an us versus them mentality will not help you at all. Instead, trying to find ways to recognize and respect the business that exists and has existed and find ways to make it better and stronger, that's something that will really position you to go and have long-term impact. 
I'm aware it's the 4th of July. You're with your family, so really appreciate that. We didn't even get near the 28-day program for Mastering Innovation's Key Steps, but a great way to finish, considering it's the 4th of July, would be the innovator's pledge that you finish the book with. Yeah, you know, so this is something that that came to me a few years ago. I remember it pretty distinctly. I was in Manila, and I had a, a number of events back to back to back. I was a little bit bleary-eyed, and I was looking for a different way to to end things, to give people parting advice. So I actually started from ripping off, which is very appropriate on July 4th, the Declaration of Independence to create the Declaration of Innovation. And it starts by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all have the ability to innovate, that they are endowed with certain inalienable capabilities. Among these are curiosity, creativity, and the pursuit of growth. I really do believe this. I, I believe that within every human being is a world-class innovator. Now, of course, you read the rest of the De- Declaration of Independence. It goes on and lists out the 96 reasons why the U.S. didn't like the King of England. That's not very inspiring. So instead, <laughs> I, I had a few specific things that people could do to improve their ability to do something different that creates value. As an example, triple the amount of time you spend with customers. However much time you're spending, and you can strike out customers with stakeholders, employees, whatever, I promise it's not enough. Regularly ask questions like why, why not, and what if. Run an experiment a day, a simple experiment, like taking a new route into work. Don't let a lack of budget be an excuse. Find ways to run these experiments without spending anything at all. Get to the intersections by reading magazines or going to different trade shows to expose yourself to new ideas. The best way to learn is to teach. So find somebody that you can share some of the things you've learned about innovation with. Finally, the the last thing I have on the pledge is to call up the weirdest, most iconoclastic person that you know and ask them to introduce you to the weirdest, most iconoclastic person they know. If it ends up being you, you have a short phone catch-up, but otherwise, (laughs) you've diversified your network for innovation. Because again, remember, magic happens at intersections. Now, these things won't turn you into Jeff Bezos or Jack Ma or Elon Musk or whatever if you do them. But with discipline, they will make you better at doing something different that creates value. And to me, that's an investment worth making. Fantastic. And Scott, last question. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, InnoSight, etc.? We live a reasonably public life. So the the InnoSight corporate website is www.innosight.com. I'm on Twitter at Scott D. Anthony, LinkedIn under Scott D. Anthony as well. We've got corresponding websites to many of the books that we've written, but InnoSight.com is a good place to get started. Senior partner at InnoSight and author of The Little Black Book of Innovation, Scott D. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Aiden. It's been a treat.